You are now listening to episode 61 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. My name is Brian Davis, and this is my show. And today I'm talking with Dr. Rakesh Patel. He's an MD, he has a private practice in Gilbert, Arizona. He's got a website, azsunfm.com, as in Arizona Sun Family Medicine.com. His focus is uh, it's a family medical practice, and his focus is uh, heart attack and stroke prevention. He also has an awesome side project for first responders. And you can find that at heartfitforduty.org. The first 15 minutes or so of this interview is missing. I had to cut it out um, because of audio issues. So we're joining the conversation already in progress. Give a listen and let me know what you think. Thanks. So yeah, I like your approach here. You're talking about a no one size fits all dietary program, and then we're talking a little bit about you know getting some compliance dietarily. Well, you and if someone's not willing to, what do you just have to hit them with the meds, right? Pretty much. I mean, you really have to. You have to get. The, I mean, the key is getting the patient to buy in. I mean, mm-hmm. and with I think I think the problem is with normal risk assessment is it really it's that's it. It's risk assessment. And when you're looking at regular risk assessment, um, you're either going to underestimate risk or you're going to overestimate risk a lot of the times. And, and so it's difficult to really know if you're over-treating or under-treating them. So, you know, I, I kind of, I go about, I really go by a disease-based paradigm as opposed to a risk factor paradigm. So we want to know, do they have disease as we would with any other disease process like cancer or diabetes or any other, uh, or poison sumac. Mm-hmm. I mean, we would we would um, look at the disease and then treat it. But when we look at cardiovascular um, disease, we don't do it that way. And, and it makes it boggles my mind why we don't do it any differently than we do all these other things. Hmm. I mean, we look at your blood pressure, we look at your cholesterol, and we say, okay, based on the and we look at your weight, your BMI. And we say, okay, based on your family history and all these risk factors, we're going to put them into a calculator, and then this is your number. Okay, you have a, a X percentage risk of having an event in the next 10 years. So that would be like something like doing a Framingham analysis. Or if, you, if you're even lucky, you know, your physician's done a high-sensitive CRP, and we'll do a Reynolds risk score, which is basically Framingham with that additional inflammatory marker. And so uh, that's... You know, you're looking at this, and you're gonna you're gonna miss a lot of people. So um, I, I, that's why I think the disease-based paradigm is really the way to go. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about a disease-based paradigm. So what are, what are you saying? You're you're treating a. How are we treating the heart? How are we treating it as a potential disease? Is that what you're saying? Or well, let's take well, let's take heart attack risk. You know, heart attack heart attack comes from a a plaque in the artery wall. And that plaque ruptures, it gets inflamed and irritated, and eventually it could rupture. And when that plaque ruptures, um, your body puts a blood clot there to seal the rupture. This happens a lot, actually, in, in patients who have plaques in their arteries. For every 10 plaque ruptures, only one of them actually turns into a heart attack. Okay. Um, so, uh, what, you know, so if it's the plaque rupture, which is the, the issue, then if you have plaque, that means you know, you're, you have cardiovascular disease and then you're at risk for having, um, an event. Mm-hmm. If you don't have plaque, then you can't have an event, um, uh, in terms of a plaque rupture, um, that would, ex- you know, still not exclude like a, you know, an acute hemorrhagic event, like a stroke, um, that's a bleed. Um, but look just purely at heart attack risk, um, without plaque, um, there cannot be an event. And so um, what we like to do is we like to evaluate the artery and look for plaque. And we have some pretty simple tools that we can do um, to do that. And then if we find the plaque, 
Okay, so now you have you establish a patient has atherosclerosis. Now you have to go and find out what the root cause is, and then you can treat it, and then you can prevent the event and prevent the root cause and prevent it from getting worse. Hmm. So, um, you know, some of the tools that we use, um, at least in my practice, um, we'll send patients for CT calcium scoring. So, you know, it's a CT of the heart. We look for calcium in the in the coronary artery. Calcium buildup in the coronary artery is the very last stage of atherosclerosis. Your body has identified that plaque and has put calcium over the top of it, kind of like a, you put, put asphalt in a pothole and, and then that, that asphalt hardens. Okay. So it's, hard, it's, it's stabilizing that plaque with calcium. So um, if you buy vicariously fine calcium, then you know, that establishes you have coronary disease or coronary plaque. Um, another test we do is something called a CIMT or carotid intimal medial thickness scan. And this is an ultrasound test, so it's non-invasive, no, radiolo- no radiation exposure. And it's just an ultrasound of the carotid artery. And then we can look at the lining of the carotid uh, and then establish whether that lining is thickened, which establishes risk, and if it's thickened to the point where we would establish atherosclerosis. So, you know, we have two really non-invasive ways of doing this. we got some other unique ways of doing it. There are a couple of blood tests that we can do to, to look at this as well from a genomic standpoint. Um, but then the cost will go up a little bit. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, you know, both of these radiology tests we talk about, they're not covered by insurance and they're not very expensive, but they're just not covered. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like a, you know, a CT calcium score in my neighborhood will run you about 55 to 75 bucks, which is not going to break the bank for a majority of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the CIMT is very in cost anywhere from 150 to $300, depending on who's, who's, you know, administering it. Yeah. For a, for a test that could so greatly impact your health, it doesn't seem too out of line yeah. when genetic testing is sometimes $1,500 currently. Right. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And, you know, we know that if we find plaque in the carotid artery, um, they did an interesting study. Um, and the study was looking at about, um, I think it was about 8,000 patients. And they all got a carotid study. They all got a CIMT. And then they got followed for 10 years. But here's the, the gist. They could not get any intervention. So they weren't allowed fish oil. They weren't allowed aspirin. They could not get any treatment. So obviously, this study can never be duplicated because it would be unethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they follow these patients for 10 years. And just having you know, subclinical atherosclerosis or plaque, so not a blockage in the carotid, but just plaque in the wall, um, you are at 40 times greater risk of having an event in the 10 years following that um, scan. So, you know, just establishing the fact that you have plaque, I think, is important because now you're in a different risk pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then you can go to the blood work and look at biomarkers and then, you know, try to um, either use nutritional therapy, lifestyle intervention, um, and then obviously, um, you know, either nutritional supplementation or pharmaceutical supplementation to, uh, to address these issues. Yeah. So let's go, let's go down this rabbit hole for a minute um my local hospital is the cleveland clinic they happen to be the number one heart center in the world according to their documentation and um one of their you know in their their dietary interventions is includes a healthy portion of heart healthy whole grains that sticks in my craw just a little bit my amateur research shows Grains are not heart healthy. Do you have an opinion on that? Um, if it's six in your craw, uh, <laughs> it is a burning ember in my rear end. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it is um, it, it, it is mind boggling uh, that that's what the recommendation is. And you know, actually, I've been you know I've been to the Cleveland Clinic a couple of times over the last mm-hmm. couple of years for conferences. So you know, one of the labs we use is the Cleveland Heart Lab. Yeah. And they're a spinoff of the Cleveland Clinic. And, uh, you know, both times I've heard um, Caldwell Esselstein speak. Yep. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, it just, uh, it, sometimes my head explodes. You know, you, again, you have, to, you have to take the patient in front of you. And so they're extrapolating this, you know, heart-healthy diet to the general population. But, you know, 80% of their clientele is insulin resistant and has a glucose problem. You know, the, the problem, though, are cardiologists um, don't do endocrinology. And endocrinologists usually don't do cardiology, and there's a disconnect. Mm-hmm. So um, there are some really smart endocrinologists, and there's some very smart cardiologists who get it. Sure. Um, but on a system level, I don't think that's going to happen. 
um, because what we're going to recommend is going to be so controversial and and so out of the box, although it really shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I I don't think I think that's an oxymoron, whole healthy grains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I read their book. Well, I tried to read their book. I skimmed through the book Heart 411. It's like the ultimate compendium on the current state of heart research and knowledge. I think Esselstein was one of the authors. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just chock full of that same stuff and it's all made up. Like they refer to this Mediterranean diet. They're just talking about some modern twist of something that some people in the Mediterranean kind of eat, but not really. The true Mediterranean diet was a foraging diet. There were no grains and, um, part of their Mediterranean diet includes low fat dairy, which historically never existed. And a few other things. So the whole thing is, it's made up. And it really, really, really bugs me. Well, they're making their population sicker. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's not done on a conscious level. Because one would, if they, you know, here's the thing. You had, I'm, here's the cynic in me or the, the evil mad scientist is that, you know, you have, a, you have a center that has to be fed. And so you recommend what is necessary to feed the center <laughs> to a certain extent. Sure. And, yeah. Especially when when they're dealing with people who are sick, their dietary intervention should be drastically different than what it is. Oh, this yeah, this yeah. might work for someone in their twenties, a hard charging athlete, um, super fit person, may squeak another forty, fifty, sixty years out. But if someone's sick, that diet, that that USDA food plate is gonna just wreck you. You know, I, you know, I, and I understand where they're coming from to a certain degree. So you know what. If they're that sick, get them healthy first, yeah, and then you can kind of see what they can tolerate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and then at some point, I'm I'm guessing this is a there's a pharmaceutical intervention for for heart disease. What does that look like? Statins and are there other popular drugs? Well, you know, it really comes back to looking at the root cause and looking at the individual's lab work. So we know that inflammation is a root cause as well. So, you know, inflammation and um, insulin resistance kind of go hand in hand, you know, the two guys in the gang. So where you have insulin resistance, you're going to probably have inflammation. And it's inflammation that causes a plaque rupture. So we know we need to get inflammation under control. So if you want to look at anti-inflammatories, you know, statins are very potent anti-inflammatories. And I think the, the, it, the benefit in the small number of patients that get it is not because of the lipid lowering. It's because of its anti-inflammatory effect. And they've actually, you know, they looked at using statins in, in like ICU settings for sepsis and things like that. I mean, um, it's been studied in, 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 some, in, in some research studies, but it's never come to fruition. But um, so that's kind of where I'm at. So if I got a patient that has whose arteries, we call like to call the term fire. So if they're on fire... You know, we want to put that fire out as soon as we can so that we prevent that event. Hopefully, meanwhile, working on all the ancillary stuff so they don't need to be on that medicine and we can get their arteries cooled off and, and maybe they can even come off the medication. Um, you do have some um, in- interesting studies about um, the halting of plaque progression with mm-hmm. statin therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you don't have great data for plaque regression, although only one of the statins is really shown, two of the statins are shown to show some plaque regression. It'll take more than just putting you on a drug that get plaque to regress. Um, it, it really it, it involves dietary intervention and then probably um, one or two or three drug interventions to help them regress plaque. Um, one of the things we also look at is how leaky that artery is. So, you know, that artery has to be uh, predisposed to um, have that um, oxidized um, cholesterol particle get incorporated into the vulval vessel. So... Sometimes we use blood pressure medicines like a beta blocker or an ACE inhibitor to tighten up that leaky artery. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do some functional testing as well. So we can, we can do um, cardiopulmonary exercise stress testing. So you basically, you go on a bicycle, you put a mask on you. you maybe you've seen these things on specials on ESPN or whatever where right. they, athletes are doing the VO2 max testing. But you can do that for cardiac patients. And it's a really nice test because it's low stress. They're on a bicycle. Um, really low risk, and you get a lot of valuable physiological data. So you can see as they progress in their exercise um, tolerance and how, as they exert more and more energy, you can look at the heart rate response and see at what level are they not able to supply enough oxygen to the heart. 
And what you'll sometimes see is an acceleration in our heart rate. And so something that sometimes will keep these people out of trouble is a beta blocker, you know, to, to help keep that heart rate lower. Hmm. So there's all these other things that we can do, but uh, again, it, it's all going to, for me, it's all targeted treatment. So it, it's, if you have a certain issue, I'm going to maybe go to this medication. If you have another issue, we might go to this medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's always on top of just trying to really optimize the diet. And, you know, cause for me, I just want to have make sure they don't have an event. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and obviously I have a medical license and if I don't, um, at least offer medication, certainly that will be not the standard of care, unfortunately. So we're always, you know, I always explain to patients, okay, this is what we can do for your diet. This is what we can do for supplements. This is what we can do for medication. And these are the guidelines. And then, you know, obviously we have a discussion then on what we want to do because, um, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I'm on that paleo physicians network. So, um, as you know, the paleo diet has really kind of taken off over the last year and I've gotten a lot more patients coming in and from looking at that website and I'm like the only paleo doctor in Phoenix. And so they, and so I have a lot of patients come to me now who are just really, you know, they're still don't want to be in meds. And so, um, you know, I still have to kind of give them the spiel though, because I think that's my, you know, it's my, my duty as a medical practitioner. So I don't, you know, again, I'm not practicing malpractice. So it's one of these things where sometimes I'm torn, you know, I don't want to prescribe the drugs, mm-hmm. but, um, but I know it's going to, at least in the short term, give them the most protection. So they have the chance to work on the long-term issues. Okay. They could take the medication home and throw it away if they chose. They could. You still have to give the the best the advice based on. I guess it's a combination of you know, your current understanding of the science and, like you said, the standard of care. The measurement. I guess there's some external measurements that are imposed upon you, right? Um, not to a certain degree. No. Uh, you know, depending on what you're looking at. For right now, it's really. Um, from a Medicare Medicaid standpoint, so you do have certain quality goals you have to meet. So if you've got a diabetic patient, the quality goals have that LDL cholesterol um, somewhere between you know under 100 or if not more aggressively under 70. So um, those are quality measurements that sometimes you do have to meet. Um, and then for commercial providers, it just varies. So it depends what kind of contract you have with them, and if you're on a on a, on a pay for you know, like a quality plan, sometimes I'll do as a as a pilot project. But it does kind of, to a certain degree, it can make, it can be an issue with um, looking when they look at numbers and or look at data. Yeah, that was a little concerning to me. Yeah, if they're chasing numbers and patients um, as a as a marker, that it's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. it, we don't have really great. Um, well, we don't have lifestyle measurements. You know, we can't measure someone's quality of life. We're looking at LDL. Like in ten years, we're probably going to go just slap ourselves in the forehead. Like LDL, what did we even? Oh, who cares? There'll be something else, you know. Or the way well, I, we, the measure it, particle size, light and fluffy, small and dense, this and that, and then every two weeks it's oh, don't check the number, check the this. Don't you know? Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. Um, I honestly sometimes really don't care what the LDL is. <laughs> yeah, honestly speaking, um, but. Uh, it's interesting when they give you this value of less than a hundred, let's say for patients who have, um, you know, high risk factors, um, because, you know, these patients aren't so protected. That's the, that's the ironic component of it is that when you have an insulin resistant patient, you know, you're basing a calculated LDL number as a surrogate marker for the number of particles in their blood. Mm-hmm. And so when you're insulin resistant, um, very often that, that is discordant. They don't line up. So you have a very inaccurate surrogate for particle number by looking at LDL. And so it's just completely, it, it makes no sense to impose this guideline, hoping that practitioners get there. By the way, 55% of them don't um, and, and think you're going to make any difference in the disease progression. And, you know, that's one of the things I think that is why we don't see great benefit was with statin therapy per se is number one, physicians don't treat aggressively enough to get them to where they need to be. And number two, if you are even treating the guideline, most of these patients still aren't at what at the goal that they need to be because they're following the wrong number. Um, so that's also kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, we can look at, uh, for example, the uh, American Heart Association get to the guidelines study. They published that in 2009. So they looked at um, patients going to the emergency room having heart attacks and it was like 120,000 patients. And they found like 50% of them had an LDL um, below 100. And I think uh, 17.5% of them had an LDL below 70. They're still having events. You know, well, that's because they're insulin resistant and their lipoprotein count is still elevated. And they're inflamed on top of that. So, yeah. you know, 
so yeah, I, I, coming back to these quality measures and these guidelines, you know, they're guidelines, so they should be used as a reference point and not an absolute treatment point. And I think a lot of physicians and you know patients buy into this as well. You stop thinking, you know, oh, I got an algorithm. Let's follow the algorithm and go from there. And honestly, you have to think um, and look at the patient in front of you and determine, looking at the data, determine what's going to be the right way to go. And so I'm guessing since when we're talking about cholesterol, you're referencing insulin resistance. So it looks like we should probably start there, right? Look at this inflammation and um, blood sugar issue, insulin issue. Um, Definitely. um it's amazing. When I started looking at this probably five or six years ago in my practice, I was just blown away um, at how many people do have insulin resistance. So, you know, insulin resistance is defined by this excess production of insulin because of the body's inability to sensitize to its, to its effectiveness. So that basically the body goes on lockdown. Um, and, and so as a reaction, um, blood sugar can rise and then your pancreas has got to compensate and make more insulin because of the elevated blood glucose. Well, this starts probably um, 15 to 20 years before you see any um, significant blood glucose elevation. So normally when you go to the doctor, you go to the doctor fasting and you get a fasting blood draw. Well, you know, the problem is, is that when you have an insulin resistant issue and a glucose intolerance issue, your fasting blood glucose is the very last sugar to go up. So you could be toiling in insulin resistant and elevated blood sugar for 5 to 15 or 20 years, and your fasting sugars can be normal the entire time. So you're missing the boat. Hmm. So, so what you have to do is you actually have to do a glucose tolerance test on these patients or you do random blood draws. So, um, uh, and so typically what I started doing about five, six, seven years ago is I started ordering glucose tolerance tests on patients. Uh, I think they're a little inhumane to a certain degree because you're, you're asking somebody to come into the office fasting and then down 75 grams of some orange syrup that tastes god-awful um, and potentially can have this huge insulin spike and get really sick from it. But, um, you know, it is the gold standard for diagnosis of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and it gives you a lot of information. So what we do is we'll draw a fasting glucose, a fasting insulin. We'll draw a one-hour glucose. We'll draw a two-hour insulin. And we also draw a uh, one-hour fasting and two-hour C-peptide number, which is another surrogate for insulin production. And then um, what we know, um, and this was published from a study in 2010, is that if that one-hour sugar is greater than 150, um, that's consistent with prediabetes. And if your one-hour sugar is greater than 120, 125, um, that's consistent with insulin resistance. And that is regardless of what your fasting is and regardless if you recover at two hours and have a normal two-hour sugar. And so if you have that number at 150 at one hour, it translates to a 13 times greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes in the next eight years. I think that's important information to have if you're a patient. (laughs) Wow, yeah. You think so? Wow. Is this something someone can do at home with a glucometer? Oh, I'm sure they could do that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's not as scientific, but you'll you'll, you'll get a data point. Mm-hmm. You know, the glucometers can be off by anywhere from 5 to 10, 20 points, but it certainly puts you in the ballpark. And, and so, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's something that you would – and also it's testing over time, just like your cholesterol. Yeah. It's just a snapshot in time. It could vary you know, wildly. So, Yeah, I've had a, I've had a couple patients um, refuse to do the test, so then what I reflex them to is the IHOP test. So what I do is I give them a lab requisition to go to the lab for a random blood sugar. And I tell them to go to IHOP and I have them eat whatever they want as much as they can. And then I have them go to the lab an hour later and get their blood drawn. <laughs> so, so I've had a couple of people me up on that offer, but it doesn't happen very often. If they could even drive after leaving that place. I mean, you'd be better off drinking at a bar for an hour. You're, safe, <laughs> you're, probably, you're safer on the road after an hour in a bar than an hour in IHOP. <laughs> So, so that's kind of a starting point for looking for these metabolic abnormalities because, you know, you'll catch it so early um, and then, then you have 20 years to work on it. I mean, you know, as opposed to, you know, the doctor that finds the patient coming into their office and they draw their blood and their blood sugar fasting is 150. Oh, my gosh, what a great job. I found your diabetic. Yeah. You know, 
well, hooray, you missed the boat for the last 20 years. Right, right, right. Where have you been, Doc, this whole time? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know if I was familiar with that. So we're talking about a 15 to 20-year process that would go undetected mostly. Exactly. And, you know, when you had the diagnosis of prediabetes, um, at that point in time, your pancreas is working at 50%. So the beta cell that makes insulin has lost 50% of its ability to make insulin. Wow. I know some older people who've been diagnosed as prediabetic and they come home like, and they, and they wipe their brow like a breath. It's a relief, like a breath of fresh air. I'm only prediabetic. Everything's fine. Nope. It's not. (laughs) But you don't feel that. You don't feel that 50% lack of production. You don't feel the elevated blood pressure. You know, you don't feel the inflammation a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time you're diagnosed with diabetes, um, usually beta cell production is down to about 80 to 90% of what it should be. So it's only working about 10 to 20%. Wow. That's a number that probably would be argued by some doctors, but I'm quoting um, uh, a diabetologist out of uh, Texas. Okay. Either way, you got a problem. A pancreatic yeah. problem. The, 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 the wheels are definitely coming off the, the wagon. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like this is at least um, pretty quickly fixable dietarily, right? Balancing the this insulin, blood sugar, these issues with, with dietary intervention? Definitely. I mean, it depends on how um, down a rabbit hole you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it can be fixed pretty easily within a month or two, and it can be fixed pretty easily within two weeks. It just depends on the approach you're willing to take. Hmm. And when I say that, it's the amount of carb restriction that you want to emphasize. You know, I mean, you have all these, you hear about all these different people on, on Twitter and online about the different dietary plans, and they all seem to do the same thing to a certain degree, but it's just a matter of how, how fast you want results and how quickly and what you're willing to do, you know? Yeah. Are there any um, name brand programs out there that you're keen on or that you, you think are a, a good place for a person to look into to re- do some dietary research? Like, say, let me just mention a few, like Whole30, you know, Whole9, Bulletproof Diet, Paleo, any, any of these things, are they um, recommends? Yeah. Or those are all things we use in the practice. Um, predominantly for me, um, we do a couple of things that we work with. Certainly paleo is a way to do it, but the problem with paleo is so broad in terms of what it could be construed as. Yeah, yeah, the um, definition so is very loose. If you're talking paleo, it would have to be a low-carb approach of paleo. So you're going to exclude the tubers and you're going to exclude the fruit. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Dave Asprey, so um, I actually use the, his Bulletproof Diet in okay. the practice, and I pass it out to patients. So I do like that plan because it is relatively lower carbohydrate, and I really like the infographic he has. It's so easy for patients to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I tell them is that they have to cut out the carbohydrates, and then the next question is, well, what the hell do I eat? Yeah, right. So I, I like that, that, okay. that handout that Dave has produced because it's pretty easy to look at, and then it gives them food choices. Um, and then um, there's another gentleman um, we use. His name is John Kiefer. Um, he's in t- Texas. Um, he's a physicist um, by training, and, um, and he's a personal trainer as well as a, a nutritional consultant. And he works with a, he's worked with a lot of high-end clients. Um, he's got a couple of books out. Um, one's called Carb Night Solution. One's called Carb Backloading. Um, and so um, we use, I, I use a lot of his principles in, the, in my practice as well. Oh, really? I, that's interesting. I always thought Kiefer was um... – more for the um, you know, the what's the word athlete set performance yeah. for performance really performance driven people. But th- these are principles you can adopt in um everyday life. Oh, definitely. You know, I think one of the things that is hard for patients you know, when they're looking at let's say Dave's plan or Paleo is that you know they're going to find them very restrictive, and and that's going to make you know it's going to be a not attractive proposition for a lot of the patients coming through the door. Um, what's kind of neat about Kiefer's, and, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, the principles that Kiefer espouses is that, um, although maybe not optimal to certain degrees, depending on what your outcome is, it does allow for a little bit more latitude in terms of being able to eat some more, some more, for the lack of a word, junk out there. Um, it, it keeps them at least, you know, you, if you look at the maybe 80-20 rule, so to speak, if they're at least on board 80% of the time, then who cares about the 20%? It's better than them being off the rails 100% of the time. So it's kind of like instructions how to cheat? Is that kind of, yeah, it kind of is. Instead of just giving you, uh, oh, make up a cheat day and out the door you go. Yeah. 
but, like but, a, it, but it's a therapeutic cheat day because yeah. if you're following a plan, you actually need to do that because it will help further your results. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's one thing. And we've actually, um, um, we're, we're trying to, we're actually working with Kiefer more closely and trying to put something together too for practitioners as well. So, interesting. Um, so, you know, so I, we, so I kind of use like, I use a lot of Kiefer's methods and then I use a lot of Dave's food choices. Um, and so I kind of, I mesh those a little bit. Um, and so those are kind of the principles. And then, um, one of the things we do is then we also do, uh, I definitely recommend them food logging, you know, obviously you want them, they need to look right down and, you know, and keep track of what they eat, even if it's for a week, because we know that, you know, patients that log food are more successful keeping weight off. And the problem is that when they stop logging, they typically will rebound. Okay. Right. It, because, it, it may, be, may be good for an individual. Just don't use the data to produce a study. Yeah, exactly. My biggest pet peeve <laughs> yes. is self-reporting studies. Just that's it's firewood. I mean, it's kindling. It's useless information. It's, it is useless. But on a population level, right? Yeah, and, and the individual standpoint is very useful because then um, you know, and then you know, I use um, my Fitness Pal is the app that I usually recommend, and I'm on there, and um, you know, I basically my diary is open to the public, and so when patients come in, I tell them, look, you can follow what I eat. Or you can look, see what I eat, and then you know, see if I'm cheating or not. I mean, I, I'm I, I, I'm going to tell you what to do. I got to be a little bit of a living example for you, so hmm. um, you know, so they can get they can get my user. I give them my username, and they can log in, friend me on my fitness pal, and then we can connect on with patients that way. And sometimes, and, and it allows them to say, hey, um, you know, I've got sort of pay, especially my diabetics, if they want to really take the um, bull by the horns. They can then, um, as they start making these changes from a dietary standpoint, then they can send me a message there and say, hey. Look at my plan. How am I looking? You know, how's my day going? What, what would you change? And so, um, I've been really successful with my diabetic patients that want to take the charge and really change your lifestyle and help them that way. So, um, and, you know, and it's amazing. Um, I can think of one guy right now that um, you know he had been seeing a doctor for about seven years, type two diabetic, really, really poor control. His uh, hemoglobin A1C, his marker of his sugar over the last three months was like nine point five. Hadn't been below seven in eons. And basically, had given up because he kept throwing medicine at him, and he didn't tolerate the medicine. Mm-hmm. And um, no one ever taught him how to carb count. <laughs> huh. So here he had been a diabetic for about seven years, and no one instructed him how to count carbohydrates. Wow! So so I got him on my fitness pal. I, I gave him a carbohydrate. I taught him how to carb count, and uh, which basically took five minutes. It's not that long. And I gave him a, a limit. And I said, just hit this limit and let's see how things go. And I think the last hemoglobin AOC we got on him was like 6.4. So he was, you know, under that 6.5 wrong. And he actually has felt best. He's felt in a long time. So, um, but those are simple things. They're, you know, they're free. Um, they don't take a lot of time from a practitioner standpoint. If you ask me, that's kind of the, one of the things when I talk to other providers, well, then you're going to have these people calling you all the time. I'm like, no, they don't really do that. They know you're busy and they don't want to bother you. So mm-hmm. they're going to ask you a question if they really you know, have a question with their dietary plan. So Are there guidelines associated with some of these apps that may be questionable? Because often they, they're there to provide advice as well, not just for tracking. So that would be my concern is what's yeah. the advice like? Like if it knew, if this, if this uh, software knew that I would consume 100 grams of fat for breakfast, what's it going to tell me that I'm dying? You know? what's, neat, what's neat about MyFitnessPal is if you put in your macro, so if you put in your weight and your height and your weight loss goal, then it spits out that kind of normal routine, standard American diet recommendation. Um, and then it, it, what I basically tell patients is to ignore it. <laughs> okay. so, and then I'll give them a separate macro to follow. Um, if they, it really bothers them that it looks like they're in the red, um, then I'll, I'll show them. You can actually go onto the online version of it and change your settings. Oh, wow. So, I mean, so okay. That, so it makes it that way they don't freak out. Some people that's really are visually oriented and, you know, seeing a red when it's, it's there, it, it just, it's more anxiety, right? So, so sure. then I'll actually, I'll show them they can go online and they can actually change the settings. So it's very malleable. Yeah, that's, that's neat. I like that. Yeah. Like I said, for me, you know, I, I am a bulletproof um, coffee practitioner have been for, I don't know, I'm going on a year and a half, two years or something like that. Same here. But, um, <laughs> It's, I've kind of weaned off a little bit, um, especially – it comes and goes. I, I don't know. But um, I, right now, I, 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 I use it specifically for intermittent fasting. I don't just automatically make myself a bulletproof coffee. I'll just randomly not have breakfast and instead have the bulletproof coffee. 
And then for fun, I just see how long I can go in the day before I'm hu- hungry. That's kind of my approach. Yeah. It's kind of fun to see how long you can go. You have a coffee at 8 a.m. with I do about 30 grams of MCT and a 50 to 60, 70 of butter. Okay. So I was, I was just going to ask you how much, how much fat are you putting in your coffee? Yeah, I do, uh, <laughs> I do. I do 30 grams MCT and then I'll just go somewhere up to a near 80 to 100 grams total when I add the butter in. So. So are you doing that with like within like like a 500 liters or sorry 500 milliliters or are you doing like an yeah like this is a 12 uh, roughly a 12 ounce coffee okay 15 yeah a, a coffee mug you know of water uh, 20 grams of coffee grounds coffee beans I'm sorry 20 grams of coffee 12 ounces of water and um, I cannot go over 30 grams of MCT I found yeah, that I try going over 30 either. If I go up above that, I've actually, I almost knocked myself out. I, was, I, <laughs> I went about 60 once as an experiment, and I just laid flat on the floor. And I felt like I had, um, how could I describe it? Almost like full body cramps. My gut was so disturbed that I felt like I had like a massive, like it's almost like a gluten sensitivity issue. Yeah, yeah it's, it's powerful. So I recommend to anyone to go easy on the MCT to start. And see where you where it fits for you. It, it's it's funny, you know. We have, uh, you know, often people ask me what I eat for breakfast, and so that's that's one of my leading questions with most of my patients. I start with is what they eat for breakfast, and so I tell them, and they just they look at me with this bewilderment. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's it's worked for me as well. So I mean, I mean, I've lost probably since you know, 2000, you know, by various methods, I've taken off about 85 pounds off my frame and I've kept it off. So, you know, wow. How old are you? 44, 44. You've lost 85 pounds, 85, 90 almost. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. Yeah. I'm somewhere 55 ish. I think something like that. I don't, I don't really weigh myself, but I did after the, I had, I put on a few pounds after the prednisone. (laughs) Yeah. That'll get the munchies. Yeah. I, Oh my God. At night I was eating just, I would just make bowls of pasta and just eat it. Rice pasta. <laughs> and then, uh, I just, at that, oh, for a couple nights and then I said, I've got to stop this. This is just yeah. stupid. But, um, yeah, I th- I'm, a, um, I'm like 5'11", 174. That's what I weighed at the doctor. Yeah. I'm at, I'm at 5'10", 180 right now. So I like to try to drop another 10 or 15 and, yeah, I'm okay. I, what I would need to do is strength training. I'm a weakling. I'm like skinny fat, you know. I have um I'm just I just have no physique. But I'm also incredibly lazy, so do you do some um, strength training? Um I do. Um I usually hit the gym and and lift weights probably anywhere from 2 to 4 times a week. Um I'm actually uh although I haven't done any for 2 weeks now, I actually um I'm a soccer player, so I was in a tournament in Vegas a couple weekends ago, and I had a goalie flatten me. And I probably have some broken ribs, but I never got an X-ray, so I've been out of commission for a couple of weeks. But oh my god, that's crazy! But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll be. Uh, You're I'll be, a doctor. Are you aware of that? Yes. You can probably. You can well, probably schedule an X-ray. <laughs> well, I figured I was still breathing. I wasn't coughing up blood, and right. I didn't have any shortness of breath. So you know, I, I mean, say, like what, I said, even if I got an X-ray, what are they going to do? I was going to say, what are they going to do anyways? Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm on the men's, but it's just uh, so I haven't. I have, so I haven't been lifting for a couple of weeks. I haven't done any activity, so I've, I've taken the opportunity to uh, do a little bit more self experimentation with the diet. So I've actually gone. Uh, you know, Dave's got that rapid fat loss protocol. I don't know if you've read it on his website. So yeah, it was been a while. Yeah. So I actually am experimenting with that right now. So interesting. Yeah, you know. When you get involved in the social media and you read bloggers and uh, anti-paleo types, paleo, pro-paleo, you know, all the different uh, aspects and people's opinions out there, people will say things like, you know, if, if, you, um, if you're on any kind of plan, it's not a lifestyle, it's a diet. And all these weird definitions that, to me, it just causes uh, confusion. And it, it's not helpful. You know, if you want to take part in a program and do a little measuring and some self-experimentation to regain your health, I think it'd be a wise thing to do. I don't think this freewheeling, just-eat-food approach 
is 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 a good idea for people who have um, health issues. I think it's got to be more focused than that, you know. I mean, and it's got to be something that's reasonable and something that's sustainable. I mean, that's kind of the issue, right? That's the heart of the matter. You, you, you know, when these people talk about a diet that is so restricted that you can't do it for the rest of your life, well, the diet that you can do for the rest of your life is the one that's specific for you, um, and that could be many different things. And mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to find the right one that matches your disease state that's going to work for you. And that's why I'm not really a person that says, okay, it's this plan or that plan or put a label on it. I, I, just, I, I think it's hard to really put labels on things. And, um, you know, I, I, and I'm not going to pick on paleo, but I'm going to pick on paleo. I mean, that's one of the yeah. things I think uh, is, is the negative about it, you know. You, you've, you've got this term now that's kind of being hijacked by the marketing agencies. Sure. And, and um, you know, and it's taken away from the – you know, issues that are going on with the, with the you know, patients and consumers. Um, I mean, I don't know if you read that uh, the article that just came out yesterday. They had that conference in Europe with all the paleoanthropologists and botanists, and they were slamming the, the paleo diet, you know, genre, because it didn't, they felt that, you know, it doesn't fit with the philosophy that's actually what happened back then. Oh, that, yeah, that was uh, from an article from 2012. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, it actually turned out to be a spoof. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I realize that. We got in some arguments online, and I saw some people and trying to straighten them around. And then, oh, boy, is that a long-winded conversation we could have. Even, but you know what? Even, then, even though when people found out it was a spoof, they still were promoting the information because it just made so much sense. And then I was like, well, then that's just an anecdote. In a talking point, it's not science. And I'm talking to people who claim to be skeptics and scientists, and they're still saying how great the points were in you know certain article that and I'm like anyways it's a bit of a rat hole but but you know just to, before you know even though that's the case if it was spoof um, there was something that was really pertinent um, like mm-hmm. you said there were some statements I think the last statement I had read in there was the this the spoof was that uh, you know we don't think it's the diet that's the problem it's the philosophy and I'm like well <laughs> who, who who cares if the philosophy is wrong if the diet's working that's all that matters and it doesn't make any sense yeah <laughs> the philosophy. That's yeah. The approach, the idea is that it's uh, evolutionary (laughs) science. So that's the that's the approach. We've evolved to be insulin resistant. Okay, so we have to now you know use what we can from a dietary approach to change that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that frankly, that's kind of a way I can think of looking at that. You know. Mm -hmm. So you're in the uh, Paleo Physicians Network. And that's been beneficial to um, bring some open-minded, participatory people <laughs> into your uh, world? It's interesting. Um, so I've been on that Palo Physics Network for maybe seven or eight years because I was an anthropology major, actually, as an undergrad. And so, uh, uh, so I've always kind of been attracted to anything paleo, whatever. Okay. Uh, and it hasn't been until the last two years where I've actually seen patients coming through my door now because I think, I think the popularity of it has really gotten big. And, you know, I think CrossFit's really have this huge boom now. It's kind of the buzz thing, uh, latest and greatest. So as you go into all these CrossFit boxes, obviously you're going to be, you know, necessarily indoctrinated into paleo. So um, I've seen more and more people that way. I think my, my involvement in social media has also probably increased my patient um, referral as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, um, but I, it is interesting segment of the population because um, it's a much more educated section of the population sometimes. And, yeah, sure. uh, right. and, or so, more dogmatic. <laughs> yeah, or more dogmatic, exactly. So, um, you know, what I normally would do for patients coming off the street isn't really applied to these subsection of patients because obviously these are patients who are dead set against pharmacotherapy. They're not, not, not going to want a stat therapy. They're not going to want blood pressure medication. Um, they're going to want to do everything with diet and exercise and the CrossFit. So, yeah, yeah. so uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice population to work with because, you know, they want to better themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. They're, so, you know, they're they really want, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. but it can get sometimes bogged down and diluted because people are so um, interested in the numbers, uh, and I think sometimes they lose a, a little lose sight of forest from trees. Yeah. So you have your own practice. You're not uh, in a hospital setting. Yeah, correct. I'm in private practice. I have my own um, medical facility. Um, I have. Um, I'm the only doctor in the practice, and we have a uh, an. A, uh, physician assistant and a couple of nurse practitioners. And then um, we actually have a separate practice um, apart from my medical practice 
Um, and that one is for first responders. So we do cardiometabolic risk assessment for military, fire, police, and EMS. Oh, wow. So, uh, so th- that subsection of the population um, are significantly higher risk for dying of heart attack on the job. So uh, 50% of on-the-line deaths to firefighters are due to heart attack or, or cardiovascular disease. Wow. So, so we have a separate risk assessment program we do for them, uh, kind of similar to what Rob has in Reno. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it probably for about the same amount of time. I've been at, well, the Reno program has been running for about 10 years, and I think Rob just got involved with it about two years ago, and we, we started our program about two years ago. Okay. And you're in the greater Phoenix area? Correct. Suburban Phoenix, correct. Okay. And you're, you're accepting new patients currently? I am currently accepting new patients, and we take most all insurance plans. Wow. Pretty so, neat. Yeah. So I'm not trying to... Uh, um, you know, go out there and do something different. I just want to. I, I just want to try to be available for as many people that want to come to Zini and yeah, try yeah. to kind of fix their, their metabolic mess. Mm-hmm. So, where can people find you? Um, they can find me on uh, the web at www.azsunfm.com or arizonasunfamilymedicine.com. Okay. Um, they can find me on Twitter at drrc patel. Um, and, uh, I think there's a Facebook link there somewhere, but I don't remember it. <laughs> okay. That's fine. And I'll have plenty of links in the show notes as always. And then our, our first responder office, um, we're called, um, heartfitforduty.org. Cool. Heartfitforduty.org. I know a few people who are probably going to be interested in that. So that's really, that's really amazing. Well, it's, it's crazy how many of these patients are insulin resistant. You know, the, mm-hmm. the problem is that subpopulation think that they're supermen. Um, and sometimes they have to be, yeah. but um, on the inside they look horrible. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine so. They're they're definitely the outliers, and dietarily, sleep wise, stress, every marker has got to be. It's got to be a really tough battle. Yeah, the sleep issue and the stress issue is significantly much worse for them. Yeah. So this has been a lot of fun. This was cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah, excellent. Let's do a. We should talk more often. Maybe just do little short segments or something. Sure. We didn't get to talk about music. <laughs> yeah, we got to do a music. We're going to cover music. We got to cover. Uh, yeah, maybe we can do like the medical minute or you know one of these uh, things they do. All right. That would be fun. I'm certainly game. That sounds like a good idea. Thanks for your time. No problem. Have a good one. All right. I'll talk to you later. Good night now. Bye. Yeah. smile union mate the snake defiled blue book murder the best you could lesson spite having twisted candid photos intermixed in sitting back door mud relies dirty corners of the mind faceless father figure hairs sitting in eyes and wasted pick yourself up off the floor shaken angel taken home clicking heels gold brick road no place like home, it seems. Now together, a shadow writhing. Your world comes, comes rushing down.